Welcome to the Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. Uh, today, we are joining you from Revelers Hour in the heart of Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., and uh, irrationally excited to be joined by one of my favorite local winemakers, Mr. Ben Jordan. Uh, ben is a one-man band uh, behind some of Virginia's most daring and soulful bottlings uh, at Lightwell Survey and Midlands Wine. He caught the wine bug working at retail outlets on both coasts before trying his hand at production in Sonoma and has never looked back. He worked with local legend Michael Shapps before taking the reins at, as winemaker at Early Mountain Vineyards. After the better part of a decade on the job, Ben recently moved on to open Commonwealth Crush in the Shenandoah Valley. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Thank you for having me. Um, not an exhaustive biography there. You have uh, a lot of irons and a lot of fires, but uh, hopefully I, I did your winemaking career some justice for the sake of, uh, you know, that paragraph. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And, you know, I should mention that everywhere I've been, uh, there's been, you know, a group uh, that I've been a part of that make make the project, you know, early, obviously Early Mountain has a has a, a great team. Um, but, you know, Midland, I do with my my brothers and uh, Lightwell um, do with uh, partners as well. And I think each each project is reflective of the entire team. Yeah, you're a little bit like, um, you know, a, a, an effective record producer. You know, you you work well in collaboration with with other voices. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, the premise here, blessedly simple uh, for the sake of today's epi um all about one of my favorite local grape probably my favorite local grape honestly in in virginia if we're talking hyper local which is petite man sang uh we are sharing two of ben's creation here uh a single varietal men sang from early mountain uh, vintage on that is 2019 which will be significant uh for the sake of a region that just has extreme vintage variation and then um uh a novel riesling petite man sang blend from lightwell survey called the hinterman uh, we will trade thoughts about what's in our glass. Then I'll read a bit of verse to close things out. If you like the sound of what we're drinking, both wines will be available at Revelers Hour, Washington's premier wine and pasta bar, directly across the street from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, which is where we normally record. But today we are kicking it uh, at the mothership itself, Revelers. Before we dive into these wines, a few questions um, about how you got here in the first place, Ben. Um, you name dropped your brothers there um, as being, you know, collaborators for the sake of uh, Midlands, which is a project named after your father's construction company. Um, uh, was dad drinking wine? Yeah, he was drinking wine. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't drinking a lot of it, nor was he, you know, getting deep into it. Um, so it was really uh, our generation that had the interest, the deep interest in wine and him and my grandparents were interested in using the farm. Um, and it's in the Shenandoah Valley and we had had it looked at by Virginia Tech and kind of talked to other growers and realized that it was a good place to grow grapes. So I think a lot of the interest in the older generations was just to use the farm because there's a lot of development pressure in that area. Um, and my grand dad used to say he'd rather grow vines than houses so that was that was more their interest was the the farming aspect of it and then the wine aspect came um for me in a circuitous way i'd gone to uh graduate school for playwriting moved to new york uh 
was not getting paid for playwriting in New York. And so uh, my day job was working wine retail. Um, and that's where I had a couple of great mentors and, you know, the lots of great wines in New York and fell for it pretty hard. Um, and then moved, I had previously lived in California, moved back out. And that's where I got into the production side of things up in Sonoma County. Um, do you have a favorite play that you worked on? Um, is there like a Ben Jordan one act yet to be produced that, uh, you know, you will drop on us, you know, once you get tired of the wine thing? Yeah, I think it's that's my re retirement uh, plan. Yeah. Um, and it, I have a specific kind of side interest in puppetry and giant puppets. So it'll probably that's amazing. Something um, like that. So that makes me think of two things. I think of uh, being John Malkovich um, uh, for the sake of the uh, the marionettes probably feature that. And then I think, of course, of um, forgetting Sarah Marshall for the sake of the Dracula musical. Um, uh, very different directions to go in there. But uh, I look forward uh, to your your marionettes. Um, and, you know, uh, yeah, I, I feel like there could be a wine angle there, but uh, there doesn't necessarily have to be. For sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll work them together. Awesome. Um, but uh, I think there is a lot of synergy and, and I think there are a lot of um, struggling artists that find their way into wine for one reason or other. And, and I think there's a lot of synergy uh, there. Um, that said, production's very different than retail. So, you know, slinging wine is very different than, um, you know, getting your nail beds dirty. Uh, you kind of cut your teeth in Sonoma um, uh, working harvest. Did you know kind of second you foot set foot on the crush pad that, you know, this is something you really enjoyed? Um, or, you know, was it something, you know, you felt like you suffered through and came to love? No, I, I, within the first week of working harvest, I realized that it was the the next step for me. And, you know, my background is uh, my brothers and I all grew up working with our dad um, in the summers. And so that's, you know, it was, it was hard work, um, you know, help mainly picking up the trash and sweeping the floors while he built the houses, but helping him build houses. And uh, then um, after undergraduate, I was a bike messenger in San Francisco, which is, you know, physically demanding as well. So those that that sort of like, tolerance for pain was already uh, embedded in me. And uh, the the kind of there is definitely an artistic aspect to the production of wine. Um, even when you're, you know, in the midst of harvest, there's, there's creativity happening. So that sort of, you know, hard work meets creativity thing was really, uh, it, it really attracted me. It's not even it's not even a tolerance for pain, though. I, th I think it's like an embrace of pain. You know, it's it's kind of, um, you know, you, you embrace the 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 menial, the you know, the grind um, of it all. And, you know, I think in its own way, that becomes a part of the drug um, you know, that, that you commit to on the on the production side. And, you know, it's interspersed with moments of creativity, but it's, it's mostly drudgery, you know, <laughs> and I think I think a lot of people assume otherwise when they when they first get into it and you know they they're the ones that drop out quickly yep you know i've never worked in restaurants but talked to a lot of people that have and there it seems it sounds like there's a lot of similarities there in terms of there's these bright moments of beauty and there's a lot of backbreaking work as well yeah yeah there's there's definitely some consistency um but uh um you know in a lot of winery contexts the you know the dining rooms a little more beautiful than your average, right. you know, uh, than your average restaurant. Um, did you always know, you know, working out West that you were going to kind of come home and that, you know, the family farm was going to be uh, a part of your um, career? Yeah. So when, you know, I was in New York 
falling for wine. And actually my dad had, uh, I was talking to my dad about an opportunity I had to work in for an importer um, retailer in California. And he was like, you know, it's probably a good idea for you to head back out there because you'll be closer to the, uh, to the wine regions out there. And uh, so it was, we had already kind of conceived that it might be part of the family plan to, to plant grapevines. Um, and we were, we were already experimenting with uh, planting grapevines, but uh, the, yeah, the idea was always to learn the, the, the skill set out there and bring it back. So your dad is like mama Kardashian kind of like bending the world to his, his will for the sake of, you know, the family trajectory. Yeah. I don't know if it's as that wrong, <laughs> but definitely like little subtle hints. For uh, sure. Nice. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, um, uh, what's, you know, going to Sonoma, you go to a place where, or working in Sonoma, you're in a place that, you know, seems just idyllically well-suited to this plant, Vitis vinifera, you know, that prefers a dry environment and you need, needs a long window of, you know, sun uh, for the sake of ripening uh, these persnickety grapes. Uh, and, you know, Virginia is not that kind of idyllic environment. Um, you know, coming back here, having worked uh, production on the West Coast, you know, did it feel sort of sadistic? Um, uh, or, you know, do you like the challenge that comes with making wine in a, a more marginal uh, kind of climate? It certainly keeps it interesting. Um, and I am the type of person that prefers for it to be interesting and challenging than to be, you know, stable year after year. And so I, I love that we have vintage variation in Virginia, um, whereas in California, there is some vintage variation, but it, you know, stylistically, you kind of hit a lot of the same notes. Um, you can, if you want. Um, the one thing I will say is, you know, push back a little bit. Vinifera, there's for sure Mediterranean varieties that thrive in in arid climates, but there's That's also, um, yeah. you know, grapes like Petit Mansang that we'll talk about that actually prefer some water, um, and. Uh, and yeah, so but you're 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 right. Vitis vinifera is challenging here in Virginia, mostly because of our humidity and the kind of disease pressure that 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 presents. Um, but in terms of fruit ripening, I think you know Virginia has plenty of sun, and uh, if you get the right grape variety, something like Petit Mensang, it will ripen consistently every year, and it becomes more about finding the, the right grape to plant in the right place than uh, than. Uh, you know, just saying, hey, I want to make a wine that tastes like something that I, some other wine that I love from, you know, Mediterranean uh, Europe. Yeah, no, that's very true. And, and um, you know, yeah, thanks for, you know, kind of writing the ship there. I'm, I'm fond of saying that there are a lot of challenging places um, that make beautiful wine in the old world. You know, there are a lot of waterlogged corners of the old world, like um, Green Spain comes to mind, you know, um, that nonetheless produce, you know, these stunning wines. You know, they don't make wines that taste like, you know, the wines that they make in dusty, arid corners of um, the continent, but they're, you know, profound and, and delicious nonetheless. I, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. The mistake is not necessarily, you know, thinking that you can make wine or ripen wine in an area that gives abundant sun like Virginia. It's trying to make someone else's wine um, as opposed to understanding, you know, what works in your particular zone and, you know, the leg up that they've had, you know, even in California is that they've had much more time to figure that out um, than, than, than we have here. And, you know, the, the fine wine scene here is, is exceedingly young. And so, um, and you only get, 
you know, one tried it every year. So um, there aren't a ton of data points to, to you know, kind of um, suss things out. Um, so you came back to uh, DC uh, and uh, you started working with Michael Shapps. Um, uh, what was that like? So that was, um, it was great for me because it was basically boot camp um, because Michael was making a lot of different wines from all over Virginia um, at Wineworks for different clients. And so I really got to kind of get up to speed um, quickly. Uh, just, you, you know, I think for every vintage that you do at Wineworks, it's like having three vintages at another place. Um, so really learn the landscape there. And what, was, uh, the uninitiated, what is Wineworks? So Wineworks is a uh, custom crush facility in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, and Michael really kind of pioneered uh, custom crush in Virginia. It's all over the the world. It's just the idea that, you know, you make wine for someone or you, you, multiple producers are using a winery uh, to, to make wine. And, and, and what Michael did was uh, make it so that clients that had a vineyard or um, wanted to have a wine project uh, could come to him and, and he would make the wine for them. Um, and he also makes his uh, his uh, brand of wine, Michael Shapps wines, uh, out of there. Um, but uh, the the kind of culture shock was, you know, obviously coming from California to Virginia is going to be culture shock no matter what. Um, but I came in 2012, which was right after 2011, which you probably remember was the one of the most challenging vintages ever. Um, you know, I think 2018 was also challenging, yeah. but people had learned a lot from 2011. Um, and so it was, it was, the wines were a lot better in 2018. Uh, 11 is waterlogged. Yeah. Just, I think it rained. I wasn't here, but the, the, it rained basically all September and, you know, lots of, it was almost impossible to make the red wines because people were trying to push them thinking that it would eventually stop raining and it never did. But the bright shining, there were two bright shining stars in the cellar when I got there, um, when I was tasting through, um, and they were both from Southwest grapes from Southwest France that are, probably used to more rainfall and that is uh uh Tanat and petite man saying uh so immediately those grapes jumped onto my radar uh just because of the way they stood out in a challenging vintage like 2008 2011. that's a, that's a really brilliant segue too um uh, and those are not grapes that you know the mass of consumers are are familiar with and and you know as the virginia wine scene, you know, originally evolved, uh, everybody's working, you know, not everybody, but, you know, I think most wineries, you know, working with um, wines that they can sell, which are, you know, familiar to uh, most consumers, you know, you do have lovable outliers in Virginia from an early day, you know, Dennis Horton comes to mind and Dennis is just, you know, trying everything under the sun uh, to see what works. And then you have, you know, people like Jennifer McLeod that are, you know, working with non-vinifera um, uh, grapes as well. So there are these like, um, you know, uh, independent, uh, voices, but you know, the massive men, they're trying to work with Bordeaux varietals or Chardonnay. Um, uh, but you know, I think there probably was, a, I imagine there was a eureka moment during that vintage that, you know, Hey, maybe these aren't, you know, particularly well suited, uh, to, to our growing conditions. Um, what makes petite man saying a good fit, um, for, uh, this corner of the world? Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of going back to our conversation a little bit earlier, I was reminded of, um, uh, a wine professional in New York, had, uh, something they said was that uh, it's interesting how some of the more rustically styled grapes are easier to grow. Um, so pointing to like Petit Mensang or Sauvignon, um, and uh, and I kind of extrapolated that the you know these the finer the fine wines for the kings and stuff like that are uh, 
you still there? Okay. Um, are, you know, those are the, the ones that are the most challenging to grow. Um, and, you know, we kind of got ourselves into this position of like, we must grow the finest wines um, and we can't have any sort of like rough edges or, you know, kind of more rustic wines. Uh, we, have, we always have to have the finest wines and that is challenging in a climate like Bernifera. Something like Petit Mensang does quite well because it has thick skins, um, lots of acid and the ability to ripen in a hurricane and just keep on, you know, accumulating sugar. So all of that makes for a robust wine, not necessarily like a delicate, elegant, um, you know, uh, lightly aromatic white, but something that has power, some, you know, texture from the phenolics and, and lots of acidity. So um, in some ways it becomes a challenge in the cellar more than a challenge in the vineyard, because in the vineyard, you know, like I say, a hurricane can come along and it's not going to rot. It has thick skins, loose clusters. Um, and the only real challenge to that grape growing in Virginia is the fact that it is Vitis vinifera and it doesn't have any uh, genetics, uh, like North American genetics or Asian genetics that give it uh, resistance to downy mildew, which is our, our biggest disease pressure. Um, but besides that, it almost acts like it is in a different uh, uh, species than all the other Vitis vinifera in that it, it is so well suited to being able to deal with the uh changing weather here and and i think this 2019 that we're going to taste here from early mountain is a good example of it in a dry vintage as well and so the fact that it can kind of bridge um some of the wettest vintages and and into the some of the driest vintages makes it a very useful grape in a place like virginia yeah and it's, it's kind of a cool uh in a perfect world you know we would have uh, these two wines from the same vintage you know to get a full sense of you know how you worked with um, you know, similar fruit under similar growing conditions, um, uh, in, you know, kind of, um, different modalities for the sake of, uh, these two projects. But I think it's kind of cool to have these different vintages as well, because, you know, you had 2018, which is this just apocalyptically wet, you know, it started raining, you know, from what is, from what I hear, but, you know, started raining in like June and never really stopped. Um, and, um, you know, Jim Law at Linden didn't make any red wine, uh, for instance, you know, he just made rosé. He just kind of, you know, said, look, you know, um, but it's sandwiched by remarkable vintages um, uh, in 17 and 19, um, you know, and you have it, that that's it's not all it's not even, you know, vintage variation it almost seems like you're making wine in different places um, uh, altogether. Um, but, you know, Mansang gives you the ability to, to you know, work differently um, depending on um, conditions. Um, how did you, you know, how do you work with Mansang at Early Mountain? So this is uh, your you know, first uh, lead winemaking uh, job. You took you took over the reins there in 2016. Um, 2015. Oh, I apologize. I'm not giving you enough credit. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, how did you kind of um, approach this grape when you first started um, uh, working at Early Mountain and how did that kind of evolve over time? Yeah, I mean, um, it was the biggest evolution wine uh, for me and I think Early Mountain, the, the team there uh, from from 2015 until I uh, left last year, uh, just because one, I think we were all enamored with the grape. I mean, you, you said it's your favorite grape in Virginia. It is also mine, um, but uh, also because of its challenges in the cellar, um, we were basically always working on it. Um, and so, you know, kind of looking at the way we made the Petit Mensang in 15, which was we did a lot of skin contact to try to, um, 
get the potassium in the skins to drop out the tartaric acid uh, to lower the acidity and give it more texture, but we blocked mallow, um, which is a natural deacidifying thing. Um, and then, you know, by 2019, we're deciding that too much skin contact was was too much. It was too, too heavy on the palate. Um, and especially in a riper year like 2019, it would have been like, you know, richness on top of richness. So by that point, we were understanding that maybe putting the wine through malolactic fermentation was the way to go. Um, and, you know, in 2015, we inoculated with yeast um, just because the prevailing knowledge was that there was no way for um, a petite man's thing to go dry. Like people just couldn't get it to go dry uh, naturally or without um, yeast addition. Uh, but we had this uh, realization in 2018, 2019, that if you're patient and you don't have any sulfur, then in inpatient, I mean like 12 months patient, um, yeah. then you can, you can get it to go dry. It's just, you, you just got to wait. And, and, and Petit Mensang is a grape that's not going to like have a problem with that. It's not going to get too oxidized. It's not going to, you know, the volatile acidity is not going to go through the roof because it's got really good pH and acidity. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a, and in the end, you know, Petit Mensang has such powerful flavors and aromatics that having a long sort of fermentation time and oxidative environment is actually good to mellow it out a little bit. Um, and certainly the malolactic fermentation uh, brings the acidity down. I mean, it still has lots of acidity even with, with full mallow. Um, but that sort of realization in, so we realized the full mallow thing in 2018. Um, and then in 2019, the realization that it's a grape that works in a not oxidized wine but oxidative style where there are those sorts of notes is a really sort of beautiful expression of it um you know and it kind of you know reminds you of you know uh Sauvignon or Chenin Blanc not made in an ox not 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 in the not topped up style but in a like a Sauvignon kind of style yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah um, no I I it was the I remember this vintage of this wine because you know I'd already always enjoyed it, but this this was the first vintage in which it felt like you know fuck this is a special wine like the you know this this is an enduring recipe you know uh, for the sake of this thing and you know they really they really nailed it um, uh, and it reminds me a little bit of like you know this old like old school riesling you know ferment you know in the you know like cold cellars in Germany that. They can last for two years um, and people just, you know, winemakers have been doing it long enough that they have the faith that, you know, the fermentation is not stuck. It's just slow um, and they're they're OK with that. But, you know, I think if you're making wine in a new place and you're unfamiliar with, you know, um, you know, prevailing conditions in the cellar, you know, it's a lot harder to to have that, you know, sort of faith with the, with the wine. For sure. Yeah, there's two other things that have become sort of technique. Um for this wine. One is, uh, I, I'd done a, my, my 10th anniversary visit to, uh, uh, Northern Italy with my wife and got, got into a cellar and they were talking about the way they were, they were picking the Barolo grapes and they just make one Barolo and they pick this vineyard, get the tank two thirds of the way full, start with the next vineyard, then hop to the next tank. And, and it's sort of like a co-ferment of picks. Um, and, and I thought that was interesting from the idea of like, just co-fermentation of different levels of ripeness, which you would have. Um, but also from the idea that if you're picking some early, you're picking some middle, you're picking some late, then you have the ability to moderate your alcohol and moderate your acidity um, while also doing a co-ferment of like the different levels of ripeness that come with those uh, 
different picks. Um, and that, uh, I think we started do that, doing that in 2019. It's become part of the uh, way that Petit Bensang is made. And then Maya and I took a trip up to uh, the Finger Lakes, I think it was in 2018, and uh, we're tasting with um, uh, the winemaker at Bellwether. And he was doing this experiment where he was uh, leaving, basically doing a Lee's Solera. So he was always saving the Lees for, for each vintage and then putting the new juice on top of it. And so you would have effectively yeast, dead yeast cells that you're putting fresh juice on top of in, in a new vintage. Um, and we were just kind of compelled by the textures and flavors that came from that. Um, and so there's always a, a thousand liter cask that that um, is in the Lees Solera on the Petit Mensang. And honestly, I think for the most part, um, those fermentations tend to go pretty well because you've got all the nutrients and dead yeast cells in there. So it's a, it's a kind of like petite menzing trick. That's super cool. Um, but yeah, you get this coral, you know, quality, uh, for the sake of the picks too. So, you know, you get like, you know, your trebles, uh, you know, for the sake of the early pick, you get, you know, your, your, you know, kind of, oh yeah, your sopranos, your, you know, your kind of like mid-tones, um, you know, for the sake of the like regular pick. And then, you know, I don't know. Uh, base notes for the sake of the or maybe it's the other way around who knows but you just get different voices um that you know can kind of harmonically converge um uh in their own way um uh which you know works with i think a, a loud grape like petite man saying for sure and one final thing which i can't believe i forgot is that this is the grape that when we're looking at the weather and there's thunderstorms or even a you know a major system coming through it's the one where we're like okay well that we'll pick that the day after it rains um, when there's probably some dilution in the fruit. Um, we can bring down the potential alcohol and even some of the acidity with kind of our terroir, which is rain and thunderstorms. Um, whereas like that idea of picking right after the rain is just so counterintuitive to most all wine grapes. Um, especially but, red varietals. Yeah, especially red varietals. But uh, but it really works with this grape, and and and, 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 and you know, kind of logistically, it helps with the season where you're not like just trying to pick everything after five days of sun right before the rain. It's the thing that you can pick when everything else is drying out. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I think all of those are examples of techniques that are designed to a grape that is, you know, has some rusticity to it, and to kind of bring it into a uh, more, you know, I'm not calling it refined, but you know, giving giving a bit of polish to it, um, and you know. Maya um, is is the winemaker now, and she, I know she loves the grape as much as I do. So we'll be interested to see what the kind of next uh, techniques are coming out of Early Mountain. Yeah, I mean, do you see, you know, I think the next step forward for a lot of people once they, you know, strike on um, kind of a, a seller program for a grape is is thinking in terms of terroir, thinking in terms of like, you know, what are my best sites for Petit Mensing? Um, do you notice a ton of variation from site to site um, with Mensing? I mean, is it widely planted enough to kind of make those inferences? Uh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think in some ways you like people want to say it's not a terroir grape because it's so loud. But um, but in, in the in terms of the wines that you can make, it is very much a terroir grape. I think Glen Manor is a very good example of a place that makes these beautiful off dry and dessert wines because yeah, of the really fun wines. Yeah, yeah. Because of the terroir, I mean, it's a mountainside property where I think he has the Pinot and Sang planted on his heaviest soils, but still, 
It's yeah. the water is not going to stay there. It's going to go off the mountain. And so he's going to get high levels of ripeness, maintaining high levels of acidity. Perfect for these more kind of Germanic. Yeah. Like he's making cabinet out of um, insane. Basically. Yeah. Um, and then you look at kind of central Virginia where one, it's warmer um, than Northern Virginia. And two, the, the, we have these heavy, heavier clay soils in some places. And, you know, there are certainly, uh, rocky sites and hillsides that are good for reds in central Virginia, but there's a lot of these heavier soils where we've kind of made mistakes planting red wines there, but you put Petit Mensang there and um, just the fact that the, the soils hold water, they help moderate the, you know, uh, sugar spikes that produce high alcohol, they help um, bring the uh, acidity down and so become good terroir for dry style Petit Mensang. Um, and, uh, you know, especially if you work with the terroir in terms of picking after the rain and stuff like that, then you can really consistently produce, you know, moderate, maybe higher than the average uh, white wine alcohol, but moderate um, uh, levels of alcohol uh, on dry petit pensing. Yeah. And I mean, you have a wine, you know, for the sake of the, um, if the back labels believe, you know, it's well over 14% alcohol, but Demon and saying like when it's done, you know, it should never really lose balance because the acid is always so ripping that it's just kind of kind of like clean everything up, um, which is why, you know, in the old world, typically um, it was, you know, most commonly used as a dessert wine. Um, and, you know, the, the the greatest, you know, dessert wine come from these grapes that have that moderating acidity um, uh, for the sake of the seesaw that you need um, between acid and, and sugar uh, on, on wines of that oak. Um, and it, just yeah. to jump in there, the. The, the alcohol on the 2019 is above 14%, well above. Um, and that is definitely a vintage uh, expression because yeah. it was so dry and there was there was no rain that we could pick after in 2019. So <laughs> we, we didn't have that tool. But uh, I think the 2018 version of the same wine was 12.8. Um, and in normal vintages where there is some rain, uh, in general, uh, this wine is somewhere between 13.7 and 14.2. So kind of in that you know, rich style, but not, not over the top. It's very easy if you're not careful to make a 15 and a half to 16%. Oh yeah, I believe it. Well, the 19 is like, it's lovely maximalist. You know, it's like, uh, it does like Jolie things for the sake of his souvenirs that are just like, you know, you know, big. Um, And, and it's kind of, I don't know. There, there's something like punk about it to me. You know, it's one of these like wines that just like goes to 11. It's just loud across, yeah. all, across all variables. It's loud, like, a Sirtico does that in, in Santorini. It's just like loud alcohol, loud acid. Um, and yeah, that's kind of hard to explain to people sometimes because, you know, a, a lot of consumers gravitate to louder wines, but maybe they don't want loud acid coupled with, you know, that big fruit and that big, you know, aromatic profile. Right. Yep. Although when it's not 80 degrees on a February day, it is the perfect, like, cold weather wine in terms of the rich foods and yeah, warm, warming our bodies when it's not 80 degrees. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's a really lovely wine to pair with. Um, uh, and, and we work with a lot in that capacity because, um, it has that richness, but you know, there is that underlying acid streak that just cleans everything up. So it's a very gastronomic wine. Um, you know, it's for a lot of dishes, you know, you want to match a certain amount of richness, but you still need that cleansing, um, acid streak and it, and it really does both beautifully. Um, now we're also um, uh, trying uh, a wine from one of your side projects, um, uh, Lightwell Survey. Um, how did uh, Lightwell come about? So Lightwell came about um, when uh, 
you know, DC's uh, Sebastian Zutant uh, was actually working um, with me at Wineworks to make a rosé for um, the Red Hen um, back when he was at the Red Hen. And and it was in a, in a way, Michael was like, hey, I think you should work with this guy because I think y'all are y'all will match up. Um, and we got to know each other and realized we had a lot of similar tastes and um, ideas about wine. And so as I was uh, when he found out that I was going to uh, move to Early Mountain in 2015, um, he broached the idea of doing a project together, um, which I was excited about. And it was he, he timed it well because I was able to talk to Early Mountain about it before um, I was employed there. And so it was all on the up and up and they supported it. Uh, but uh, Debbie's an awesome and, and kind of unique voice um, as a Psalm too, because he has worked production. Uh, and he worked in California as well, at Tandem. And, you know, so I think a lot of, you know, that is missing, you know, for the sake of perspective, uh, for a lot of people that pour wine professionally. And, and um, yeah, I, it, it makes sense to me that, you know, uh, the two of you got along as people that had seen both sides of the trade that way. Right. Yeah. And I think the other important part about it was that, um, you know, his... So early on, I had an exposure to uh, what they, they, they didn't, weren't even calling it natural wine, but my mentors were like into Louis Dresner and those sorts of wines. Um, and, uh, and so th these were the, these were the tastes that we shared. Um, and so it was important, like, and we've never called Lightwell natural um, and aren't going to, but to be inspired by the techniques and the way that those wines present was something that was important to both of us from the beginning um, and to, you know, be at, at the very least minimalist in the, in the cellar um, and working with uh, uh, a region in the Shenandoah Valley where, uh, you know, the lower um, and just that, that ethos was inspirational to Lightwell. Um, and so I think that's, that's been important in that, you know, it's led us to do a lot of co-fermentation, um, white red sort of wines, really sort of, pushing the envelope, uh, you know, getting into the idea of th that hybrids can be used uh, to make lower intervention wines in, in an interesting way. Uh, all those sorts of things are things that have been part of Lightwell from the beginning. And, um, you know, in, a, in things have already changed since 2015, but, um, you know, just seven years ago, it was Virginia was a very classical landscape with regards to, to winemaking. Um, and while a lot of other young regions and certainly older regions were kind of pushing the envelope we weren't doing that yet so it was an opportunity for me um to to work in that way um and and you know the fact that sebastian was already in that world was very useful in terms of Sebastian, Sebastian is that world um, yeah. <laughs> um uh yeah and i think there's there's something like wildly irreverent about uh the brand as well that really fits you know, natural wine is a very loaded yeah. uh, word. Um, and I think for those of us in the trade, sometimes it's like a bit of an eye roll <laughs> inducing um, term. Um, but by the same token, it does embody the spirit that is kind of countercultural in uh, a really important way for the sake of embracing experimentation, embracing more gastronomic styles of wine that are lower ABV and higher acid. And you know, embracing fun um, uh, for the for the for the sake of wine, and and something that's you know not as you know 
inextricably bound up in this luxury lifestyle, something that is just, you know, more of an everyday luxury. Um, uh, and I'm going to quote you to yourself, um, uh, Ben, which is one of my favorite things to do for the sake of uh, uh, this pod. Um, uh, you call, so in your branding, you say, Lightwell Survey, unusual, delicious, provocative. Uh, uh, but uh, I like this quote. Um, uh, this is uh, uh, Ben talking about the wines. We're not just being weird. You can craft a chair and it can be uh, highly creative and even look very odd. But in the end, there are certain principles about being a chair. It still has to hold someone up when they sit in it. Um, so, yeah, you're you're making, you know, a reverent, non-interventionist sort of wine, but it still has to be a wine. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, that's been important to us from the beginning is, you know, not to let it go off and become, you know, some, something that is, uh, you know, closer to vinegar or, or, or other things. Which yeah, we, and there are, there are a lot of um, crimes committed under the natural wine, natural wine banner. And, you know, it has become, you know, a flavor profile in as much as it um, is, um, you know, a philosophy of, of winemaking. And um, I think a lot of us who love natural wine in a particular way love the wines that are matter-of-factly natural. You know, I love, you know, a lot of the quote-unquote natural wines that you wouldn't think of as natural um uh you know the ones that just wear it you know lightly um as opposed to just like shouting at everybody's like i'm natural dude you know like uh, um uh you know that that can become uh, a bit insufferable um so you have this you know kind of um moment of um you know kind of uh you know shared um uh understanding with uh uh sebi um sebastian dusant and uh, you decided to work on the side project. How does this particular wine come about? So we are drinking um, a 2018 blend of Petite Mansing and Riesling. And this is kind of a different way to respond to the challenge that this grape presents. So, you know, the challenge with Mansing is always, you know, at its ripest. And, you know, it's a grape that needs to be ripe to kind of express its honey to varietal character. But if it gets too ripe, then you can only really make sweet wine out of it. Um, and, you know, you talked about finding ways around that for the sake of mallow um, and, you know, these like this picking schedule um, at Early Mountain. Um, this is kind of a different, um, uh, you know, response to that problem. Yeah, I think, um, excuse me, I think, uh, yeah, this is in some ways inspired by what they do in the Jurens on where they're they bring in a lower um, potential alcohol grape variety. Uh so there it's Gromanseng, which, you know, if, if Petit Mansing's potential is 15 and Gromanseng's potential is 11, take the average of that and you get something that's pretty moderate. Uh, but here we're doing it with uh, Riesling, um, which is not necessarily a grape that should be planted all over Virginia, whereas Petit Mansing you can plant anywhere in Virginia. But you can grow Riesling basically at the elevations of the Shenandoah Valley and above uh, and and make some interesting wines with them. So the uh, it is definitely the moderating partner in this co-ferment and on top of that you know it's a it's an aromatic wine um that in some ways has these uh especially when co-fermented with petit mensang has this ability to make this a very interesting aromatic profile um and you know something that has depth and layers uh where are you sourcing the fruit um for this particular offering so uh let's see the petit mensang um originally was from uh just south of Stanton, um, so uh, just south of 64 in the in the valley. Uh, and it's kind of like due west of Charlottesville in the Shenandoah. Due west of Charlottesville in the Shenandoah, yeah. Um, so pretty much everything that's uh, plantable there is 
kind of uh, 1,300 feet and above. Uh, um, so is this the Kears family fruit or? Uh, so the Riesling is from Kears um, yeah. and that's, that's 1,800 feet of elevation. Yeah. Um, and then, um, but we've more recently started sourcing from further north in Shenandoah, Shenandoah Valley near Woodstock, um, but still at 1,300 feet of, of elevation. So, um, and the, 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 the interesting thing about, another interesting thing about the valley is the, there's a different, whole different geology over there. There's a lot more sedimentary uh, rock uh, from being an ancient seabed. So you have limestone, you have sandstone, uh, you don't really have much granite, uh, you have shale, um, and you have, you know, high calcium content on some of these soils, which changes the soil pH and changes the wines. Um, oh. But on top of that, you have what's really like, what used to be small mountains worn down into uh, large hills, ridges sort of thing that run the length of the valley, which are very interesting topographically, are good for avoiding frost, good for draining, um, and good for uh, aspect in terms of uh, solar radiation. Um, yeah, I often think about the Appalachian Mountains as just like an eraser that's just being worn down over time, just because, you know, it's an older, it's much older mountain range than the Rockies, uh, for instance, but it's just been eroded um, through the sake of millions of years of, of uh, weatherization. Um, and a lot of the rock, there's not a lot of, there's not a ton of sedimentary rock there because, you know, you're dealing with just like a lot of old um, uh, metamorphic, but sedimentary is always something that winemakers get excited about, especially for the sake of um, you know, calcareous soils, calcium heavy soils that, um, tend to produce, you know, racier, brighter, um, uh, sorts of wines and allow for really amazing drainage. Um, uh, but uh, I think, you know, increasingly, uh, and excitingly, um, Virginia growers are looking West, you know, when people first planted in the state, you know, I think the primary concern was just selling the wine and, you know, proximity to a major metropolitan area for the sake of Washington, DC. But, you know, as the scene evolves, people are realizing like, you know, maybe, you know, the first vineyards we planted aren't necessarily the best sites. Um, you know, maybe there are some more privileged sites. And uh, it's interesting, Early Mountain kind of came to that realization too, especially for the sake of of their red wines. So, you know, they have, um, you know, the, the, um, the winery site, but then um, they purchased another vineyard um, that came online right when you started, right? That's right, Quaker Run. Um, and then the, the goal was always to work with other mountainside or uh, ridge ridgeline vineyards uh for for the reds um which is the continuing goal there um and that's the thing about the valley is even though even though it's a valley there's really only a small portion of it that's river valley where the shenandoah valley is or shenandoah river is meandering through it and there's flat land most of it is if you took away the blue ridge mountains and the appalachian mountains to the west you would call them small mountains they just happen to be smaller than the bigger mountains around them so it looks like a valley from the tops of the mountains but you get you get onto the all the plantable the places where grapevines grow well and it's really just ridge and you know val smaller valleys within there yeah which is ideal um for the sake of drainage in a place that is relatively wet and then you know you had the added bonus for the west you go of getting like a little bit more of like a rain shadow effect um at times uh for the sake of the although that that varies from north to south doesn't it yeah, but it, it is significant regardless of where you are. Um, so I've, I've worked with, you know, vineyards up in Woodstock. My brother and I have a vineyard in. I didn't. I'm so excited. Virginia has a Woodstock. I didn't realize there was a Woodstock, Virginia. Yeah, I don't think it's as much fun as the other Woodstock. Um, <laughs> yeah. But there are some grapes there. Um, but my brother and I have a vineyard in kind of the central middle part of the valley uh, between Stanton and Harrisonburg and then have worked with stuff further south and all these places 
have lower rainfalls on average. Uh, and especially in, in a vintage like 2018, the Shenandoah Valley was a much easier place to be um, in in terms of rain. There was rain, but it wasn't, you know, it would be all significant. It, like, it wasn't biblical. Wasn't, yeah, it wasn't biblical. <laughs> um, when did you first make uh, the Hinterman? Uh, that was in 2015. So it was one of the first wines. It was a wine that I really wanted to make because um, oh, cool. it, was, it was this idea of those two grapes together. You, you had this recipe in mind yeah, Re- yeah. for the sake of Riesling being the foil. Yeah. And and as a co-ferment, not a blend, uh, like fermenting them together. Um, and, and actually the first one, um, a significant amount of the fruit was actually from uh, my family vineyard. Um, my, my brother and I had interplanted Riesling and Petit Mansang with this with this idea that maybe that could happen. Um, and we weren't ready to make wine. Um, so this was a this was a way to start to to test it out. Um, and there've been kind of similar approaches. Sometimes when we have low yields at the family vineyard, we make a Ries Lang, um, which is. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's amazing. Uh, that, that beat out uh, Manling or. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Manling is the other way. And that work. Um, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, and, and, you know, the, this is a wine that, you know, is, you played around with a lot um uh for the sake of the percentages uh in 2018 if the back labels are to be believed it's 59 percent riesling and 41 percent petit men saying um that percentage has changed um uh you know a lot um over uh vintages um and i'm sure there are practical considerations there for the sake of what you can get your hands on in terms of fruit for a side project but um it's changed even further in the latest vintage because uh um uh i think you lost access to the the riesling and used vidal that's correct. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was partially due with frost. There were some major frosts in 2020, which uh, kind of lowered crops around the state. Um, but also, yes, just didn't have any access to Riesling um, and had access to Vidal. And so it was a little bit of a what's going to happen sort of thing. Um, but I think the main thing that happened is, is Petit Man saying step forward and kind of took the lead um, just because Vidal doesn't have quite as much um uh, varietal character as as Riesling, where Riesling can hold its own. Um, but it, I think it also it made me remember that I love Petit Man saying, and that's okay. And and so in twenty, you know, in twenty nineteen and twenty twenty one, it's it's a little bit more out in front. And so I think Hinterman's become a Petit Man saying driven wine, whereas the two thousand fifteen, I think, it was like seventy percent Riesling, and was definitely like more Riesling than. Um, than it will ever be again, I think. Yeah, it's, I, I really like the new vintage. Um, uh, and the man saying does feel like a louder voice um, in in a cool way. Um, you know, the the Vidal is just kind of the canvas that, you know, the man saying, you know, paints on a bit in a, in a way that Riesling doesn't do. You know, uh, um, I, you know, this is not like the most recognizable varietal Riesling in the world, but it still does Riesling things structurally. Right. Um, uh, and you know, that's an identifiable signature. And I, I like that about the wine. It works. Um, uh, but, um, I was surprised how well I, I liked the Vidal and I love equally, you know, this idea of, you know, fucking with that whole hierarchy of, you know, vinifera non, um, uh, and, you know, mixing both and, you know, finding out what works for the sake of that. And, and I do think if you're working for a great, you know, working with a great like man saying, it's kind of like, you know, I think about cooking, you know, there are 
some dishes where, you know, a spice that is included in, you know, amounts that amount to less than 1% is the loudest voice in a dish. Um, and, you know, wine can work the same way. And, and, and Mansing is one of those, you know, highly aromatic spices. It's like cloves of the, of the wine world. So, you know, you could have a non-vinifera wine that is spiked with Mansing that still reads like a Mansing wine. Um, and I think that's just kind of fun to, to play with. Um, and, you know, it gets frustrating for consumers because they've been just like indoctrinated with this idea that at the end of the day, you know, monovarietal wines are the purest expressions and, you know, um, you know, single, single site wines are the greatest joy in drinking and all that other stuff. And um, that couldn't be further from the truth for, for most winemaking, honestly, you know, the, for most winemakers, the art is in blending. Um, and, you know, for a lot of the greatest wine regions in the world, historically, you know, they weren't, you know, kind of staking their lot to, especially in marginal climates, staking their lot to one grape. You know, there was always a family of grapes that were interplanted, you know, that supported one another, uh, depending on, you know, um, you know, the vagaries of a particular, you know, growing season. For sure. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, to, to pick up on the hybrid line, um, the, you know, when I, when I came back from California, you know, every wine that I'd ever drunk was vinifera based and, um, definitely had a, uh, some, some notions about, about hybrids being lesser. Um, and it took me a while to get around that. Uh, but you know, it, it's, I think it's, that comes from a very like Eurocentric way of thinking that the only, the only good wines are made in Europe. Um, and then if you want to make a wine that's second class, then you use vinifera. And then after that, it's third class, fourth class, that sort of thing. And I think we've, we're finally, uh, as younger generations, uh, get into the, this wine world, we're finally breaking free of that. And that's really important to the East coast. It's really important to the mid Atlantic and Virginia. And so I think grape varieties that grow well, um, uh, and then also produce good wine are, are really what we need to do. We need to stop, you know, aping, um, the, you know, what the French tell us we should do. Um, and uh, and I think we're finally at a place where it's not only us uh, realizing that, but the world is realizing that you're seeing breeding projects all over Europe where they're bringing in, you know, North American genetics into into vinifera backgrounds and and producing new grape varieties that are both disease resistant, disease resistant and make good wines. And, you know, I think, you know, playing with hybrids in Virginia and giving them respect is, is part of Virginia being okay with that. And that's, that's part of what you're seeing a lot of younger winemakers do in Virginia is not just make hybrids into the lowest common denominator, but, you know, give them respect and, and, and say, Hey, yes, we're, we're happy. We're, we're honest. We're making uh, hybrid wines. And I, I think that's an exciting part of, uh, you know, the future of Virginia. It's going to be an important part of, um, what I'm doing with Lightwell, what I'm doing with my brother. Um, and then with, uh, the new place that I'm at, uh, Commonwealth Crush is really kind of looking to the future in terms of the wines we're making and being a part of that, uh, progression towards it. Uh, Brent, uh, I have, uh, this feels like a good segue for the bit of verse. Uh, this is, uh, Rita Dove today. Um, uh, Virginia has a rich poetic tradition. Um, and Rita Dove um, has been a personal favorite uh, for a long time, a uh, really amazing African American female poet. And I didn't realize that she'd been poet laureate of Virginia. And I was pleasantly surprised to find out that, that was um, uh, the case. So uh, this is called 
I have been a stranger in a strange land. And uh, it's a dedication to Emily Dickinson um, and an Emily Dickinson quote, which is life's spell is so exquisite. Everything conspires to break it. Uh, and uh, here's a poem from Rita Dove. It wasn't bliss. What was bliss, but the ordinary life she'd spend hours in patter moving through whole days, touching, sniffing, tasting, exquisite housekeeping in a charmed world. And yet there was always more of the same, all that happiness, the aimless being there. So she wandered for a while, bush to arbor, lingered to look through a pond's rested mirror. He was off cataloging the universe, probably, pretending he could organize what was clearly someone else's chaos. That's when she found the tree, the dark crabbed branches bearing up such species bounty. She knew without being told this was forbidden. It wasn't a question of ownership. Who could lay claim to such maddening perfection? And there was no voice in her head, no whispered intelligence lurking in the leaves, just an ache that grew until she knew she'd already lost everything except desire, the red heft of it warming her outstretched palm. Uh, yeah, I like that. It, it reminds me of this. There's this great uh, uh, French quote. Um, uh, the French, real, or a lot of uh, French winemakers hate the word, the English word winemaker. Um, uh, and they will say, um, a winemaker no more makes a wine than a gardener makes a flower. Um, and I, I always like that. And, you know, it seems fitting uh, for the sake of this bit of verse. Um, talk to us about your, your latest project. So um, uh, we name dropped this whole um wild notion of you know a glorious warehouse that becomes a tech incubator of sorts for um burgeoning criminals and winemakers and uh you trained in one uh with one michael shaps and uh you just opened one yourself yeah it's um yeah we mentioned the the idea of custom crush earlier and it is custom crush um with an eye on the way they're doing it in california um, which is to, well, I, I should walk that back. There's many different <laughs> ways to do custom crush, um, but there are some interesting facilities in California where there are a group of like young winemakers uh, kind of uh, doing small, pro small, interesting projects. And the idea that if you get, you know, multiple uh, experimental slash creative folks together in the same space, Sure, they'll get on each other's nerves sometimes because they, you know, tripping over each other's hoses or whatever. But there will be a lot of sharing of knowledge, the inspiration, uh, moving back and forth, um, and just, uh, you know, also just the logistical uh, solution to not being able to afford uh, building a winery for yourself if you're making less than, you know, if you're making a hundred to a thousand cases. You know, there's just no financial reason to invest in all the infrastructure to to do that with a small project so that has been uh there, there hasn't been a place to do that in virginia um uh, in 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 the past years uh so that was really what we were trying to do kind of at the same time uh walsh family up in in northern virginia is is has a similar approach um and so in some ways like they're they're offering it to that region but we're in waynesboro which is just over the mountain from the central Virginia region. So about 25 minutes from Charlottesville, for instance. Uh, and so we're very close to that community there. Plus we're um, in the Shenandoah Valley. So close to the vineyards there that we believe will produce the next generation of Virginia wine. So, you know, it's kind of a, the quote unquote, big idea of, of supporting that next generation. Um, but, you know, it's impossible to support it if you don't go and try to do it. And so that's what we're trying to do. 
there's a famous uh, building at MIT. Um, uh, I think it's like Building 20 or something. They're, they're all named. But um, uh, there have been all these incredible um, scientific advances uh, made there. Um, and they attribute it to like the unusual layout of the building to some extent, because like they're but, like they're no like real straight hallways and stuff like so people are always like running into each other. And, um, you know, if you put enough great minds in, you know, that kind of, um, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, kind of clustered environment, the hope is that innovation ensues. Uh, so I, I, I like that idea as, uh, you know, and there's it's just like it's great. Churchill quote, you know, uh, at first men make buildings, but over time, you know, buildings, you know, um, you know, shape men. Um, and, you know, the truth of that. And I, I like the idea of this like polarity on the one hand in the north, you have Wash family and then you guys are doing your other your thing uh, at the southern end of um, the valley as well. For sure. And, you know, the, the Wash people are, are good friends. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mentioned earlier, Virginia has been a very classical place. And I think, you know, hopefully what we're going to do is lower the fear barrier because it can be very hard to like if if everything is done a certain way and, and it's quote unquote the right way it can be hard to like experiment with other ways um so the idea is to set up a place where people can can do things differently and show um you know other folks that hey it, it, it is okay to to do something a little bit more offbeat and you know failure is is you know, there's a spectrum and, you know, what might be a failure classically might be very interesting to uh, to a, a new wave. And so we're really trying to structure in, in the same way that that uh, MIT uh, building um, uh, is structured to create create creativity. We're, we're really trying to structure the, the setup and the flow to to do that. Well, and equally, the economic barriers to entry are just obscenely high um, for the sake of, of making wine and, you know, having a um, a custom crush, you know, lowers those significantly for the sake of people that just kind of want to play around. And, you know, if you're just making, you know, a barrel um, or, you know, a bin um, of something, you can you can kind of fuck around a little bit. And, it, you know, you can you can afford to fail in a way that you can't if you're working with, you know, multiple massive tanks of wine that you're producing for, you know, a client. Right. Exactly. That's really exciting. Um uh, final question, and you kind of like touched on this um, throughout, um, you know, this episode in a lot of different ways. You know, how would you like to see the local wine industry grow and evolve? You talk about, you know, kind of um, letting go of some of those classical, you know, um, archetypes and, you know, embracing uh, some new ones, um, working more uh, perhaps with, you know, hybrid uh, varietals. Are there other vinifera varietals you'd like to, you know, see? you know, kind of more um, uh, widely embraced or, you know, there are other styles of wine um, that you'd like to see people, you know, kind of experimenting with more than they currently are? Yeah, I mean, I think rather than specifically answering that question, I think it's like a more general overall reminder that we are a very young industry that is, uh, you know, a lot of the grapes that we're working with weren't, you know, they grew up in places that are very different than um, where we are. And, um, you know, I, I am a firm believer that we can grow grapevines and that make good grape wines in Virginia. Um, you know, you walk into the woods, there's hundred year old grapevines everywhere. Uh, it's just a question of finding the right ones. And so, you know, I think really being open to 
these there's there's this the movement of new varieties that you know may act like a wine grape in the cellar but are much more resistant to diseases in the vineyard i think we need to really take a look at those and i and i see virginia really being open to that which is exciting um and then certainly uh being more open to creative styles which we're the we're starting to see um especially with uh the, with newcomers uh creative takes on winemaking i do believe that um that the kind of classical background is important because it's a good like way to understand uh the way wines have been made um in reference to if you're going to make something different uh you know why it's different that's sort yeah, it's of like if, if you're going to color outside the lines you have to know where the lines are in the first place exactly yeah and so i think you know it, there's still very much a place for a classical style of wine in in virginia um but uh but yeah i'm mostly excited about new grape varieties be they vinifera or these kind of new uh disease resistant vinifera things that are coming out of europe um i mentioned to you before we started recording that virginia has embarked on a uh, grape breeding program. Um, it's traditional grape breeding, so it's not going to happen overnight. It's not GMO or anything like that. But uh, the idea is to produce uh, disease-resistant grapevines that have high vinifera character, really that have good winemaking character. Um, and so I hope to uh, one day make wine with with those grapes. Um, and uh, and yeah, and you know, I think uh, overall, like the ent entire wine industry as a whole um we we've, we've got a ways to go in terms of diversity and inclusion um and uh it, we're we're starting to see um different organizations and wineries make that a focus and so i think hopefully that is a uh, an important part of our future as well going forward brilliant well thank you so much for joining us ben uh it's been a pleasure to talk to Petit Mensang. i feel like we could um you know fill our time with a number of different topics for for your sake and uh, I look forward to discussing them out in the future but um yeah uh just you know for the sake of you know fanboying a little bit um you've added such a um you know needed and different wrinkle um to the the Virginia uh wine scene and um you know I, I really um like the idea of you as a pipe piper for um, this future generation of, um, you know, winemakers looking to chart a independent direction um, for uh, mid-Atlantic wine and, and one that's not necessarily wedded to, you know, um, American archetypes or, you know, European ones. So uh, cheers to you, sir. Um, uh, thank you all uh, very much again for joining us. Uh, I hope you enjoy the broadcast. Uh, please, please, please seek out uh local wine please seek out um ben jordan's wine uh people can visit uh midland can they not no so uh, that, not yet. sorry <laughs> but midland is um my brother lives on the farm and okay we, okay we we're trying to keep his his life sane uh, but it's, uh, it's a little bit of like a get off my lawn kind of uh paradigm at the moment yeah um but we're making the midland wines and the lightwell wines at commonwealth crush now um okay. we're going to uh open the tasting room i think in uh either late april or early may so it'll be a more of a kind of wine bar feel because there'll be multiple yeah. producers there um but uh it is you know 25 minutes from charlottesville so if you're in the area please do come visit in a, equally in a very historic uh building is it not yeah and so you know the, the the interesting thing about waynesboro is that it was very much a manufacturing town for the 20th century and uh 
you know, went through, uh, like, a, like a lot of places, lost manufacturing to overseas. Um, and so has gone through a downtime. But uh, because of that, there's a lot of square footage of warehouse space and industrial space that uh, is, uh, you know, at a good enough price that we could start a project like this, for instance. Um, but yeah, uh, and equally like beautiful warehouses, not like not, not your <laughs> warehouse does a disservice. It's not not like your average industrial garage. Right, right. Although our our space is the newest part, which has concrete floors, <laughs> which we wanted. Um, but okay. right up beside a beautiful, uh, you know, kind of wood floor, glass, tons of glass nice. warehouse. So it's going to be that the whole we're tenants in a in a much bigger you know development of this uh, the Virginia Metal Crafters building. Um, but uh, so you know, in a year from now, it's going to look a lot different. It's going to be a lot of exciting stuff there. There's a Basic City Breweries next door. There's going to be a concert venue. Um, all sorts of fun stuff. So it should be a, a neat place to visit, which was not the reason we moved there. We moved there because we needed square footage that we could afford for a relatively large footprint. Um, but hopefully it uh, turns into an exciting place to come drink wine as well. Great, man. Um, uh, thanks again uh, for listening. Um, stay thirsty and stay tuned for more of the universe in a glass.